take our Bibles now, if you would, please, and let's open them to Philippians chapter 1. And this evening, we're going to just look at one verse of Scripture. We're going to study just this one verse. And if there's one verse that could summarize the value of Paul's life, the entire value of his life, it would be this one verse. In the beginning of the third chapter, he gave an assessment. Now, we haven't got that far yet, but in the third chapter, in the beginning there, he gives an assessment of his life before he met Christ. And his conclusion, his assessment about not having known Christ, he said, all of my life before I met him was wasted. It was all refuse. It was no good. The interesting thing is that when Paul's writing Philippians, of course, he's already met Christ. He, he's acquainted with him. He's a saved person. But the conclusion that he makes about his life in this book, is the same thing after he's saved. His life is nothing, only it's not wasted. It's nothing because everything that he has is consumed with Christ. It's not about whether he lives or dies. It's not about what he's doing. It's not about personal things. It's all about what Christ would do through him and Christ would do in him. Now, the verse that we're going to study tonight takes us to probably one of the most sublime areas of thinking that the Apostle Paul had. And I'll have to confess to you this evening, I have not reached the place of this verse that we're going to study. I don't know, probably, I can't think of anybody that I know is, who could be uh, so fully into what Paul says as Paul was himself. I don't think anybody has reached that place, but I do know it's what we aspire to be, and what we aspire to do. And we're going to read about this verse in just a moment. Let's stand, if you would, please. And I really want to start with verse number 19. We'll read down to our text verse, verse number 19 of chapter 1. He says, For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be life or by death. And then there's this text verse, For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful verse of Scripture. I, I just ask you, Lord, that, that it would be the cry of our own hearts, that to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And Lord, we just thank you for what we can learn from this tonight. Bless our people, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to ask you all to think very honestly for just a moment about one question... I'd like to ask you, what does life mean to you? Or what, what it really is life to you? Now, I don't want anybody to answer me out loud, but I want you to really think for just a moment, what is life to you? Just before I wrote this message, as a matter of fact, it was the day before, if I'm not mistaken, I was sitting on the, on the couch at home, and my wife was there to the left of me, and she was lying there on the couch, actually, and she had Elijah, our little grandbaby, and both of them were kind of snoozing off and on. And uh, as I looked at them, just for a split second there, I began to think about life. I mean, what is my life? What, what, what is my life all about? And I remember thinking, right as I was looking at her and looking at that baby, I just can't believe. Here I am, we're both in our 50s, and I know you can't believe that either. We don't look at it anyway. But you know, I was just thinking, we're here in our 50s now, it, it seems like life has gone by so quickly. Just, it seems like yesterday we were talking, my wife and I were talking about getting married. Then our, our children came along, and that just goes by so quickly. 
And as I was sitting there looking at them, I I thought about my life for just a moment, and it seemed right then that my life was all summed up in my wife, it's summed up in my children, it's in my grandchildren, it's in the house that I'm living in, the couch that I was sitting in, the job that I have, all of those things I consider are my life. But as we read what Paul has to say here in Philippians chapter 1, in the split second of reflection and of his thoughts, he didn't think like that. He didn't think about his life being consumed with family. He didn't think about things that were going on around him as far as what what the occupations of people are, the everyday life that's going on. What happened to him in that split second of reflection was this, that he thought that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you look at this in your King James Version, you'll notice there that the word is, that little verb is, is in italics. And that tells us, of course, that that word is not actually in the original. That's been supplied by the translators. And so it would actually come out to this, to live Christ, to die gain. Paul was consumed with Christ. Now, continually, I'm talking to you as we go through Philippians about Paul's secrets. I mean, what's the secret of his life? How does he go through the things he goes through? How does he live the way he does? How can he be in prison be joyful, be happy, be just continuing in the things God wants him to do. How is he able to do that? And this is one of Paul's secrets right here, and that was to put Christ first in everything. Everything was Christ. So he wasn't concerned about catastrophes that happen in life, things that go on around him as if those were the things that control his thoughts. His life was Christ. As we think about these other things, family, It's fine. There's nothing wrong with our thinking about our families. That's wonderful. Work may or may not be fine, and that's a good thing to think about. Um, But if we really come down to it, when calamity strikes any one of those areas, it devastates us. I mean, if it's family, things that go wrong there, losing a job, all these different things that happen to our lives and in those areas, if things happen there, that is catastrophe, catastrophe for us. Now, for a person who's not a Christian, they can be overwhelmed by such things. They don't know how to handle it. One thing Christ has given us as believers in him, he's given us the capacity to take care of it, I mean, to deal with those kinds of things. But if we're going to face it, I mean, really, those things put Christians in depression, and I, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if all of us don't have exactly the same experience and have the very same testimony. When things go wrong in our life, it brings us into depression. And the only thing that can get us out of that, and for these other things not to be catastrophes for us, is to get closer and closer to the way that Paul thinks. Now, what I want to do tonight is to just think about this, this, this one verse here, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What I want to talk about first of all tonight is about Paul's doctrine of Christianity. What was Christianity to Paul? Now, there are many ideas that people have about it, and usually when we think about what Christianity is, we're really thinking about all the things that are attendant to Christianity. And what people do is they substitute different things, things that are attendant to Christianity, for Christianity itself. So we're going to talk first of all tonight, about Paul's doctrine of Christianity. What does he mean when he says, for me to live is Christ? And we're going to look at it in a negative way. What kind of things are not Christianity? Now, the first thing that I would tell you is that Christianity is not Christians. And thank the Lord for this, that Christianity is not Christians, because if it were, 
Christianity would be a colossal failure. Much of the trouble that we deal with is because of what Christians cause. And when I, when I put messages together, when I'm preparing sermons, usually what I'm doing is try to undo the harm that Christians have done to Christianity. Centuries ago, uh, humanly speaking, Christianity was endangered. And I mean by that that Christianity could have come to possible extinction if it hadn't been for the grace and the sovereignty of God. Now, this is a really big if when we talk about how things could be without God's sovereignty. But the fact of the matter is that through the, through the ages of the church, Christianity would have been destroyed by Christians. I think about the Roman Catholic Church, for instance. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church would have actually rid the world of Christianity in the Dark Ages if God hadn't stepped in and intervened. If not for the providence of God, even today, we'd still be uh, suffering religious persecution and the Roman Catholics would be right at the head of it. The survival of the true church is only because Christ has promised that it would be here in the world and the, and the, and the church can't be destroyed. But it's not for lack of trying, and a lot of the trying comes from people who call themselves Christians. Now, the, you go back to the Middle Ages and, and uh, those, those, that period of time, it was a satanic attack to be sure, and God overruled Satan's attempts to destroy the church. But Satan is still trying today, and he's still trying today through Christians or people who are identified as Christians. I mean, some of those are, are false, and some of them are real. The ones that are false, they, they pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may even pervert the person of Christ, as the cults do. But they're still claiming that they're Christians. But really, the, the biggest problem that we have today doesn't come from cults, and it doesn't come from those who are out and outright perverting Christianity in a false way. It's those who claim to be, or, or really are, true believers in Jesus Christ, but because of ruinous testimonies, because of the way that they go about their lives, what they do, the way they, they just go through everyday life at work and wherever they are, people are looking at them and saying, if that's Christianity, I don't want a part of it. And so what they look at, if Christianity is Christians, then they're looking at Christianity as a failure. And certainly it would be. I mean, uh, uh, you look at what the way that we live and what we do, and we would have to say that the claims of Christ are unfulfilled if that's what we put all of our hope and our confidence in. So never think that Christianity is Christians. The second thing, Christianity is not the church. The church is a collection of Christians. And so if Christianity is not Christians, it certainly can't be a collection of Christians. Absolutely, we do believe that the church is God's plan and program for the world. There is no more important institution on the face of this earth than the Lord's church. We believe Christians ought to be in churches. This is Christ's commanded institution. It's the only one that he's given that, that has the authority to preach and teach the gospel of Christ. But the institution is not Christianity. And there's some people who think, well, if I can just get into a church, if I can just be a member of the church, then I'll have this thing of Christianity down. And so what do they do? They go and join churches. And it's not much more than going out and joining the Kiwanis Club or joining the, uh, uh, the, the Elks Club or something like that. It's just a social thing that they do. And there are plenty of churches out there that are willing to be the social club for Christians. And so they just go about their lives being a member of their club. And the church that they go to is no different than being part of a Boy Scout troop or, or something on that order. But Christianity is not the church. And if we try to place Christianity as the church, we're going to put something before our eyes that will cause us to fail. Christianity is not the church. 
True churches are attendant to Christianity. They're a consequence of Christianity. They're a necessary part of Christianity, and we believe it is today, but they're not Christianity. Then thirdly, Christianity is not ceremonies. And that's where a lot of people put their hope as well. To be a Christian means that you've been confirmed. It means that you've stepped down into the baptistry. You've got your, your feet wet or your whole body wet, or, or some people think that they've got sprinkled, and so therefore they have become Christians. To some people, Christianity is the priest coming by and putting a wafer on your tongue and then saying some kind of a hocus-pocus and changing, changing wine into the blood of Jesus Christ. Many people are enamored with ceremonies and rituals and they think that's what Christianity is. But that's not Christianity. And then fourthly, I'd tell you that Christianity is not creeds. Christianity is not catechisms. It's not learning the, the statement of faith of the church. Christianity is not an oath that you take. You know, I've run into many Christians that when, or many people, I should say, that when you ask them if they're Christians, they start out with all the wrong answers. They start out with things like, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, I went to, I went to Catholic school. Well, are you, are you a Christian, though? Well, you know, um, I've learned the Apostles' Creed. I completed the catechism. And for some people, are you a Christian? And they say, well, my grandpa was a preacher. None of those things are Christianity. Not Christians, not church, not ceremonies, not creeds. None of those things were sufficient for Paul to say, in whatever state I am, therewith I've learned to be content. None of those things were able to sustain Paul that enabled him to to endure prison, to go through the physical and the mental anguish that he went through every single day. None of them were sufficient for Paul to get up after a stoning and preach the gospel of Christ again. None of it's sufficient except one thing. None of those things, Christianity is in none of those things. Christianity is not those things. Christianity is not a movement. Christianity is not an influence. Folks, it's very simple. Christianity is Christ. Christ is Christianity. He says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And Paul's doctrine of Christianity is Christ and nothing but Christ. And if you want to live out, leave out the is in that statement, it's all right. You could say Christianity, Christ. And that would explain it all. Now that leads me to a second observation. And this is Paul's life in Christ. What is his life in Christ? What did it consist of? Well, first of all, it consisted of faith in the Savior. His life, first of all, is that there is a Savior. And more importantly than that, that he is a personal Savior. And Paul believed Christ is his personal Savior. Now, what it means to have faith in Christ is to mean that you have to drain all confidence in yourself. I mean, the reason that most people don't even come to faith in Christ and refuse to come to faith in Christ is because they haven't done that very thing, and that's to drain all confidence in self. And so they rely on things like rituals and on ceremonies and all these other things because they're not willing to surrender everything to Christ, and the ceremony and the ritual is the contribution that they make in order to help God save them. But Paul's faith was in the Savior, That's his life in Christ. Unfortunately, there are many people who make faith the cause of salvation, and that's a serious error as well. Faith is not the cause of your salvation. Faith is an instrument that God uses for you to be saved. We're saved by God's grace through faith, and God uses faith as the way to help us to understand that God has given us grace. Faith has an object to it. And, of course, the object has to be the one who is Christianity. That's the person of Christ. 
So ceremonies can't save. Uh, Recitations of creeds don't save. Recital of certain words will not save. And not even an agreement to a three-point prayer, three-point presentation of Christianity, I should say, in a prayer afterwards. Those aren't the things that save. Rosaries, prescribed prayers, they don't save anybody. Faith's object must be Christ. Objectively, the object of our faith is actually what Christ did for us, and that's his death, burial, and resurrection. I mean, if Christ didn't do that for us, faith in him wouldn't, wouldn't mean very much at all. So objectively, it's what Christ did for us. And anything that you try to add to what Christ did is not really saving faith. And you know, that's one of the things that Paul spent a lot of time talking about. A lot of times he was just, just refuting the idea of legalism when people said, well, you have to add something to this in order to be saved. Now, in Paul's day, it was uh, one of the main things that people tried to add was circumcision. And if you want to know what circumcision stands for in this, in this theological debate about faith, it actually stands for anything that you add to your faith that will help to save you. Now, Paul's day, the thing that was added was the physical act of circumcision. Today, it's things like baptism. It's things like church membership and philanthropy and humanitarianism. Any act of self-righteousness. Anything that you add to faith in order to save you won't work. It can't be saving faith. So it's Christ and only Christ. And again, the reason that many people aren't saved is because they are determined they're going to help God do it. But there is no saving gospel outside of Jesus Christ. Nothing produces life but Jesus Christ himself. It's all about what he did and nothing we do ourselves. So what is Paul's life in Christ? Well, secondly, we could say it's following the Savior. When Jesus spoke to his disciples, he gave them two very simple words. He said, follow me. Life in Christ is following Christ. And what that means is to live his life. Now, let's understand something here because those... those Men here that you were in our, in our meeting last week with Brother Ekno, you'd say, well, that's not what Brother Ekno said. Brother Ekno said, we can't live the life of Christ. And you know, I absolutely do agree with him. And you've heard me preach with that. You can't live the life of Christ. We can't do what Christ did. I mean, we can't walk on water. We can't uh, do miracles like Christ did them. Uh, there's nothing that we can do that, that could live out the life of Christ. I mean, John said... Jesus did so many miracles or so many things that happened to his life, he couldn't even, you know, the world couldn't contain all the books that could be written about what Christ did. We can't live Christ's life. What I'm talking about when we follow the Savior is having Christ live his life through us. We can't attain to Christ's life, but when we follow him, he can live his life through us. For the disciples, when Jesus said, follow me, that had a physical aspect to it. I mean, they could see Christ. I mean, they saw where he went, and Christ literally meant to them, follow me. I mean, get up from where you're sitting and follow me. I mean, go, go where I'm going. Observe the things that I do. And so there's that physical element of following him. But there's also a spiritual element. And the spiritual element is what most concerns us, and that's what we follow, follow in the steps of Jesus in the sense that we let him control our lives so that we go where Christ would go and do what Christ would do. When we were in Israel, one of the things that that really made an impression upon me was when we went to the archaeological discovery of Bethsaida. And there in in that city, and and all these things that they've uncovered there, and 
they, they uncovered a street that they were about 99% sure that they could say, this is exactly where Jesus walked. That he actually walked on those stones. You know, I sat there for a minute. Actually, kind of the group had moved on, and I went back and just stood there for a minute and looked at that street because I was impressed by that. Here are very stones that Jesus walked on. Songwriter said this, he said, I walked today where Jesus walked, and I felt his presence there. And as I sat there and looked at those stones, I, it was just going over and over in my mind what it must have been like for Jesus to walk in that very place. So I could actually see the literal place where Jesus stepped. But following Jesus means much more than that. It means more than making a trip to Israel and trying to find streets where Jesus walked on. Following Jesus is to live his life. There's a songwriter who wrote a song entitled, I Then Shall Live. And I love the words to that song because they express what it really means to follow Jesus. Let me read the words to you. He says, I then shall live as one who's been forgiven. I'll walk with joy to know my debts are paid. I know my name is clear before my father. I am his child, and I am not afraid. So greatly pardoned, I'll forgive my brother. The law of love I gladly will obey. I then shall live as one who's learned compassion. I've been so loved that I'll risk loving too. I know how fear builds walls instead of bridges. I dare to see another's point of view. And when relationships demand commitment, then I'll be there to care and follow through. Your kingdom come around and through and in me. Your power and glory, let them shine through me. Your hallowed name, oh, may I bear with honor. And may your living kingdom come in me. The bread of life, oh, may I share with honor. And may you feed a hungry world through me. You know that last line that he wrote, and may you feed a hungry world through me? Surely the author's intent was more than just feeding people physically. Because what Jesus went about doing was giving people the bread of life. He gave them salvation. He gave them the gospel. He gave them living water. And that's Paul's life in Christ, faith and following. But then thirdly, there's another aspect of his life in Christ, and that's fellowship with the Savior. Fellowship is communion with Christ, and and that's the closeness that you get when you feel that he's working through you, when you know that he's really in, in, in a presence in your life. I've had conversations with two different church members at different times on, and just recently on the subject of the assurance of salvation. And some of the things that I asked them were things like this. How do you know you're saved? Have you felt the conviction and the moving of the Holy Spirit? How do you know you're saved? Have you had an answer to your prayers? How do you know you're saved? Have you been chastised? Has there been something that's come into your life that you know that's the moving of God because you're not as close to him as you should be. Now, if those things take place in your life, you know that you're a child of God. And when it happens, one of two things is happening. Either either you are in fellowship with Christ at that very moment or the Holy Spirit is moving you to the place where you will be back in fellowship with him again. And so God lets us know. uh, He gives us that fellowship and that's how we know his presence with us. Now, what we have to be careful about doing is not to let anything crowd out the fellowship that we have with Christ. And it's very possible for people who are 
everyday workers in the church who show up for every single service and are busy about Pioneer Club and Sunday School and busy about all the things that go in the church, the choir, maybe playing music, maybe, you know, just, just everything that happens here. You get so, so wrapped up in all of those things that you never take time to really fellowship with Christ. You don't have time to commune with him. Now, that's just a sampling of what we could say about faith and what we could say about following, what we could say about fellowship. All of those are themes that are developed right here in the book of Philippians. This is joy, Paul's life of joy, happiness, contentment. It's a life consumed with Christ. But there's one other observation I want to make about this verse. We're going to follow up next week with some more uh, thoughts about verse number 21 along with some others. But there's also the issue of death. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So thirdly, let's talk very briefly about Paul's death with Christ. He says, to die is gain. Every time that I preach the funeral of a born-again believer, the message always comes down to this, to die is gain. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Paul was really not concerned too much about death. He wasn't worried about it at all. In verse number 20, he, he said that Christ would be magnified in his life or in his death. And so Paul was not sitting there uh, chained to a guard, possibly even two guards, wondering all the time, what's going to happen to me next? I mean, what, what, what else can go wrong? What, what's going to happen to my life? No, he's only thinking death is gain. Later on, he'll talk about how that, how that it might be better for his converts if he is to live. But for him, personally, death is gain. Let me give you quickly three reasons why he wasn't afraid of dying. First one is the gain of rejoicing. Paul knew where he was going. Heaven is where Paul was going. That's the destination. And so in heaven, there would be rejoicing. And I think that Paul's life work caused a lot of rejoicing. Here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 15. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Now, you think of all the sinners that repented at Paul's preaching. There must have been a lot of rejoicing in heaven. You think about all the churches that Paul started and how the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire. There must have been a lot of rejoicing going on in heaven. And when you read the book of Philippians and you think about the converts that he made in Philippi, there had to be a lot of rejoicing that's going, that was going on in heaven. And folks, I want to tell you, we preach the very same gospel today that Paul preached, and every time that a sinner repents today, they're still rejoicing in heaven. So we have an everlasting gospel that we preach. Paul is able to see that from the other side now, and I believe that he rejoices also when there are people that are saved. Heaven rejoices over repentant sinners. The second thing is there's the gain of reunion. In 1 Corinthians, he said, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We all know a great song that came from that verse. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I shall behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Paul had an encounter with Jesus. He had a face-to-face meeting with him. And we know that story of how he uh, met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And one of the qualifications for him even to be chosen as an apostle is that he must have seen the resurrected Christ. That's one of the qualifications. And Paul was able to see him. 
Now, Paul saw him, but he didn't seem quite like the other apostles saw him. When the other apostles uh, were called out by Jesus, they had walked with him. I mean, they walked with him during his life. They ate with him. They sat with him. They went through uh, many different things that Jesus went through. They spent time with him. But when Paul thought about his face-to-face meeting with Christ, he didn't see him in the same way. He didn't have that opportunity to spend the time with him that the apostles, other apostles did. And that's one of the reasons why Paul was so self-deprecating about his apostleship. If you remember, he says in 1 Corinthians, I am the least of the apostles. They walked with Jesus, and what Paul did was to persecute the very ones who walked with him. So he was self-deprecating about his apostleship. But he did say this in 1 Timothy 1. He said, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So Paul was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. And of course, if he had continued, if he had continued with that life, he never would have had a face-to-face meeting with Christ. But here, Paul's waiting for a glorious reunion. To die is gain, because there will be a reunion. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So death is a promotion for a Christian. You know, in every funeral of a Christian, we're, we're always sad for the loved ones that are left behind. I mean, we sorrow for them, but we ought not ever sorrow for the one who's gone beyond. I mean, that person has entered into life with Christ. They're there in a reunion, and thank the Lord for that. So the hope that we have of heaven, of course, is to see Jesus first of all, and then also to see those who've gone on before us. Then finally, Paul was not afraid of death because of the gain of rewards. I've heard a lot of people say, and even some preachers say, you should never serve Jesus for rewards. Never serve him for rewards because you're to serve him out of love. Don't serve him for the reward. You know, I understand the sentiment in that. Sentiment in that. I understand it very well, but it's actually unbiblical because Christ promised a reward. And if he wanted to serve us to serve him simply out of gratitude, he would have never said there was a reward coming. He would have said, just serve me out of gratitude. But he does promise that reward. Now, there's one thing for sure. Nobody is going to serve Christ simply for the reward because it's not in our hearts to do so. You're never going to go to somebody and dangle a reward in front of them and say, you know, you really ought to be a Christian because there's a reward for being a Christian. That's not in the natural man's heart to receive information that way. There has to be a change take place first. And so we have a desire that's created, a love that's created for Christ and a desire for that reward only through our regeneration, our new birth, being born again. So nobody's ever going to serve Christ simply because there is reward out there. Their hearts have been changed to love him and to serve him, and therefore they seek for that reward. When Paul was ready to die. I mean, when he came down to the very last moments of his life, he wrote in 2 Timothy, for I am now ready to be offered and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So it's not just a face-to-face meeting with Christ. Heaven itself is a reward. That's a wonderful thing. 
But Paul says here, not only do I get that, but he's expecting the crown of righteousness. So he's expecting reward from service. And no doubt, Paul had piled up many rewards, but I don't think that any reward that Paul ever received or would receive was in a self in, in self-interest. I mean, just because that, that he had a selfish purpose in it. He endured what he did for Christ because of his love for Christ. And through the love for Christ came that reward. One of the essential elements of faith is actually reward. I mean, here's what Hebrews says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So the first reward that we receive is Christ. Secondly, we're looking for eternal life. But surely the writer of Hebrews also has in mind that there is the inheritance of the saints. I mean, knowing Christ means that we come into the full inheritance that Christ owns. And so there's that element of reward that's out there, and we ought to seek it. Let me close tonight with, with this thought. Every demand of life and every expectation in death are met in Christ. Christ satisfies in both of these areas. So if we go back to where I started the message tonight, when we contemplate life, what is it that we want from it? I think all of us would agree that we want peace, we want contentment, and we want happiness. Christians and non-Christians alike want the very same things. It's just that we seek them in very different ways. We have a different way to receive those same goals then what is it that we expect in death? And lost people and saved people also pretty much have the same expectations in death. But how we pursue our expectation is also very different. The non-Christian hopes that life, with an unsure hope, that life in the world beyond will be better for him. He doesn't know that it will be. doesn't know that he's not going to suffer eternally. But he sure hopes that everything will be all right. The difference in us and them is that our hope is a sure, steadfast hope. There's no wondering about it. There's no guesswork that's involved in it. We absolutely do know for sure that to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's no doubt about it for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've had to spend tonight to to think about your word. There's no way that we can really present the the thoughts of Paul, not what his real heart was, and the deepness of his thoughts on this. There's just no way that we can explain that. But Lord, in the best way that we can, we hope that we do understand better that you are to be central in our lives. You are our lives. And then whatever happens to us is in your will, and we trust you for it. So Lord, we just thank you for all things. And we do pray, Lord, that when we die, we do know that it is gain. Thank you for this time we spend together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.